Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is absolutely transformational for our lives. And I pray that you will anoint our hearts and our minds and our ears and our hearts to receive not just teaching, but to receive revelation, I pray. Spirit of God, as I'm communicating with my voice, I thank you that you're walking around every single heart here, tapping on our hearts, speaking into us. And and we say together now, speak to us, Holy Spirit. When you say that, if that's your prayer, speak to me, Holy Spirit, through your word. Teach me, guide me, open my heart, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in a series at the moment on the Song of Songs, and it's been a little bit hot under the collar some weeks, isn't it? No, maybe not. Okay, great. Glad you're all feeling not very prudish this morning, and that's wonderful because it's going to get hotter today as well. So um, we are moving into a new gear in this story, this song, this wonderful song of songs. And the gear we're moving into is that this couple have now got married. Yay! <laughs> Here comes the bride. So, um, so it's about to get more graphic as a result of their marriage. But we'll come to that in just a moment. But just a reminder us in this series that we've been looking at, there are three different ways that you can correctly read the Song of Songs. And it's not like one section you read this way and one you read another. You can read all of them through these three different lenses. Let me just remind you what these lenses are. First of all, it's a love song between a young man and a young woman. The young man is King Solomon and the young woman is his bride-to-be. And we can learn lessons about how we can conduct relationships in this world as a result of looking at their relationship together. The second way of reading this is that it's a history of God's love and desire and affection for his special people, the Israelites, his chosen people. And so we um, can read it and we can see this history of how God is engaged with his people, the Jews. And the third way of reading it is that it's a love story, a love song between Christ and you and I, his church, his bride, He's coming for a pure, spotless bride. We are it. And this is a love song about that very relationship. And now we're going to move into chapter 5. And we're just going to look at the first verse together. And it says this. I have entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices and I eat honeycomb with my honey. I drink wine with my milk. And in reply, she says, oh, lover... And beloved, eat and drink. Yes, drink deeply of your love. They drink deeply of their consummated, passionate love. Their longing and desire has intertwined to the point where the scriptures talk about two becoming one. One flesh. You notice there's a change of language. Previously, we looked at 
the garden of our hearts, the garden of our soul, allowing the Lord to come and walk around our garden, our lover to walk around the garden. And we, in that, we saw the reference to your garden. But now the young man says, I have entered my garden because now the two are one. We read in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul who wrote about marriage being like a, a pointer, a signpost to God and our relationship with him. Everything in this world points to eternity. Everything points to Christ. Yeah. And our relationships on this earth, they don't, they don't, they're not something that happened outside of that orbit. There's something that God has designed to point towards spiritual truth and reality. And we see that Paul in Ephesians, he says that man will be united with his wife like Christ is with his church. We're joined together, one flesh. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4, he says this, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. This is not a charter for demanding abusive sexual relationships within a marriage or any other form of relationship. This is not, um, this is not a license to be um, someone that is demanding uh, in a relationship. But it is an identification that the two are no longer two. They are one. We are united. We belong to each other. And there's something beautiful and wonderful in that. And they were married now in this song. And they had given over to one another. The two had become one. And there was such joy and wonder in this union. In fact, we see that there's quite, as in all of this song, there's loads of poetry and some of it won't make its way onto Valentine's cards you send tomorrow because it doesn't quite connect into the poetic understanding of the culture and the times that we're in today. But you see that there were some doubles that were given here. For example, um, I gather myrrh and with my spices. I eat honeycomb with my honey. I drink wine with my milk. And that these represent that in this entire relationship, it was just beautiful and wondrous and perfect. Some say that the myrrh and the spices, it's like a fragrant and enriching result of their union. There's something that comes off their life as a result of that. The honey and the honeycomb, that there was a beautiful sweetness in their relationship that came by their joining together. And the wine and the milk, that there was complete fulfillment of their sexual thirst and appetite. You can't find this completeness in a casual relationship. Now, let me, let me just emphasize something here. That the Bible doesn't tell you or I that we need to find a husband or a wife in order to be complete. Okay? Um, the Apostle Paul, he said that it's good that, you, that you're alone. You know, if you can live that way, that's good. You'll be able to focus your attention on the kingdom matters. And that's something that's great because, you know, our Savior was a single man, Jesus. And he was fulfilled and complete. He wasn't thinking, oh, no, how am I going to manage without a wife? You know, he was complete. But there is something beautiful about relationships that are given to us yeah. as well. And this world tells you that you can play around and you can have all sorts of fun and you can be really complete with that and that it's very satisfying. And in fact, 
that there's so much commentary from the world that looks at people in the church and says, how can you be so boring and how can you live so prudish? How can you live without fulfillment if you're not playing around in relationships? And I want you to understand And this is not just from the scriptures, but actually there are many people that I've met over the years who have played that narrative of this world and they are still deeply dissatisfied. Because the only true full completion can be found in a relationship that is united, faithful, loving, honoring, caring, Christ-centric. You can't find that in a casual relationship. You can't find that in a one-night stand. But it's important to note something, which I'll talk more about next week, but I'm going to mention it quickly this morning. And that is that there is a right and a wrong time to awaken love within us. If we go forward a few chapters to chapter 8, verse 4, it says this, Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. There's a right time to awaken love, which means there's a wrong time to awaken love. When is the right time? When is the wrong time? Is it when you get to the age of consent that that's the right time? Is before that the wrong time? Well, no, it's not about age. It's about context. It's about being in this garden that's wholesome and healed and restored and loving and faithful and kind and God-honoring. That's the time for love to be awakened. Any other time is the wrong time. And there are alarm clocks everywhere in our world, aren't there? Ringing, trying to wake up your love. You know, they say that so many kids, even at the age of nine, are being exposed to issues of pornography in today's world. That they say that there's so much trying to awaken the sensuality and awaken the desire, the sexual desires of people today. Don't awaken it before the right time. We look more at this next week. But here... Back to chapter 5. This is a highly charged, intimate coming together of two lovers. And it's not just about sexual gratification, and it's certainly not about lust. It's never been about satisfying a physical desire for sexual gratification. Here are two people desiring, longing, and loving each other, and their physical joining together is the crescendo of everything that's in their hearts. That's much better than just having sex. And we read on verse 2, verses 2 and 3. It says, I slept, but my heart was awake when I heard my lover knocking and calling. Open to me, my treasure, my darling." My dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, she said. My hair with the dampness of the night. But I responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? We're not given any insight here. 
into how big a gap there was between verse 1 and verse 2. But there is a significant change. Possibly this is a dream, similar to the one that we looked at a few weeks ago where her lover disappeared. But here we've got a picture of the groom knocking on the door. Knocking on the bedroom door. Desiring her. Asking her if he can come in. Do you know, this is how the lover of our soul postures himself towards his church. He knocks. He desires. But he awaits our response. You're familiar probably with that verse in Revelation 3 to the church of Laodicea where the message was, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice, open the door, I will come in. The understanding, the converse of that is if you don't hear his voice and you don't open the door, he won't. And I will share a meal together with you as friends. This door... This bedroom door was locked from the inside. Now, she clearly loves her groom. She is clearly so pleased to be in relationship and to be married to him. But she's already tucked up in bed, under a warm, warm duvet, on a lovely mattress, and we added the detail that she's washed her feet and doesn't want to get them dirty again. So the door remains locked. At one time in their relationship, it doesn't matter how cozy she was under her quilt or how many times she had washed her feet before going to bed, there would have been nothing that would have stopped her from running to that door and saying, come in quick. That sometimes is true of how marriages work as well. Now, I took a bit of a risk in my research for this talk today because I, I put something into my Google search history that I hope has no negative consequences for me because I, looking at her um, refusal to get out of bed and to receive her lover, her husband, I Googled these words. Reasons why your wife doesn't want sex. And I found this. There's a lot of websites that answer that very question. One of them had over 25 different reasons why your wife may keep the door locked and not open her heart. Now, it's important for me to note here that these are generalizations. So if it doesn't fit for you, that's okay, all right? Don't protest about that. Don't say, that doesn't work for me. It doesn't describe me. It doesn't apply to me. Hold that thought for a moment because you're going to come back and see that what we, one of the ways of reading this is that it's about Christ and his church. So we hold that intention for a moment. But... In my looking into this, I chose one website that had five reasons. I thought that's a bit more digestible for a Sunday morning. 
25 reasons why your wife doesn't want to have sex with you felt a little bit exhausted for our service. So I've gone for five this morning. Are you okay for me to look at these? Everybody's scared to say amen. Everybody's scared to move their elbows. Okay, let's look at these. First reason that was given was that she doesn't feel connected to you any longer. See, and it's again, this is generalization, but guys may connect physically, but women are more likely to connect emotionally. So, guys, you're ready, but she needs to be understood, known, listened to, loved. Talk to her about her feelings. Talk to her about your feelings. Listen. Connect at a deeper level, not just a physical level. Secondly, and yes, it does say these words on the screen, she doesn't feel sexy. Body insecurity is a significant issue in our world today, isn't it? Heightened by our body-perfect culture. Guys, affirm your wife. Let her feel the passion of your words, of your care, of your insight, your understanding. Let your eyes sparkle with desire for her. And let her see it in all of your language and your body language. Thirdly, her sexual appetite is not as strong as yours. Studies have shown that over people's lives, that women's sex drive can decrease over the course of her life. Whereas a guy's stays fairly constant. Guys, be patient and be tender. Fourthly, she is tired, stressed, or maybe even depressed, or maybe going through some physical change, maybe like the menopause. Make sure that you're supporting her, guys, and that you are understanding the pressures she is facing. Help with kids, house chores, Treat her like a princess. And if you suspect that there's depression, then talk about it together. Maybe speak to a GP or a counselor if there are concerns around those things. And how many points did I say I was going to was this the 25 version or the five? five. The five. Number five. <laughs> she is focused on being a mum. Women go through so much physically. You are, you are heroes, ladies. Like, I know you don't have to experience the male flu, but apart from that, <laughs> you go through so much physically and emotionally. You are incredible. And switching from a mother to a wife can be a challenge in a marriage. But it's really important that you remember that you are lovers. Talk with her, affirm her, 
Affirm how wonderful a mother she is. And express your love and your care and desire for her. Let me make this point that even the most precious of relationships, marriages, often can have struggles in the areas of intimacy in their life. Lots of relationships experience tensions over unfulfilled sexual desires. But in this scene, you remember this scene that we're looking at? The reasons were smaller. Let's look at it in verse 3. But I responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I've washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? One day, she was prepared to sail a thousand oceans, climb hundreds of mountains, to just spend a moment with him. And now she doesn't want to walk across a chilly room for fear of getting her feet dirty. In the preceding words to that verse in Revelation where it says, I stand at the door and knock, you remember that some of the words given prior to that, to that same church, Laodicea, was, you're neither hot nor cold. In other words, it doesn't say you don't love me anymore. It doesn't say, you know, I'm not sort of in a relationship with you, but basically saying that the desire is gone. The passion is gone. That driving desire that gets you off the mattress and lifts the 15-tog quilt off you and walks across broken glass, if need be, just to spend time together, has gone. And now you're going through the motions. And if I take these five reasons, these five causal things of why a wife may not want to have intimate relationships with her husband. And if I point in these towards our relationship with God, maybe contextualize them in that light. Let's look at the first one. You don't feel connected. God wants to connect with you. He wants to connect with you on a deep and an intimate basis. He is standing at the door and he is knocking to come in. He longs to hear you articulate your cares. He longs to hear you talk about your anxieties and your concerns. Don't switch off from God when you're going through a dark, difficult time. That's the time to come close to him. Don't stop hanging out with his people when you're going through a dark time. That's the time to cleave close to him and his people. It's not the time to pull away. It's the time to draw close. He's the best listener you'll ever find in your life. You know that? Think, well, that's not what spending time with God is. I've got to have my prayer lists, and I've got to have my shopping lists of intercessions, and I've got to have my scriptures to read. And God's saying, I just want to be with you. I want to be close. I want to love you with all my heart. You know, we don't, when we spend time praying and fasting, we're not doing that because we're saying, God, will you please come close to me? He is knocking at the door saying, let me in. What we're doing at that time is we are dealing with 
the fragility of our own heart, with the lockness of our own lies, with the corruption of the things of this world that have broken down our boundaries. And we're dealing with those things and we're saying, I'm taking the latch off and I'm letting you in. Jesus wants to come close to you. Secondly, you don't feel desirable. Listen, hear him speak this truth over your life. Let him switch the lights on. Stop hiding. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing embarrassing or awkward here. Let him switch the bright lights on and let him love you. Thirdly, maybe your appetite for intimacy is low. Hear this. He definitely longs for you. Stand at the door. Will you break free from all the lies that would hold you the other side of that locked door? Will you allow his love to come and set you free? See, the enemy has crushed sexuality in people so much. Everything's hidden, locked away. And there's, you know, things of honor and there's things of rightness. We don't stand up on stages and talk about, you know, our intimate lives. There's, a, there's an appropriateness. But the enemy has got people hiding behind locked doors. And God wants us to open the doors and to know the liberty of the love of God, healing us and setting us free. Fourthly, you feel tired. Did you know you can rest in God? Bible says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The message version talks about the unforced rhythms of God's grace. One of the delusions that we live in under the tutorship of the lecturers of this world, I don't mean university lectures, I mean just the culture and the pervading forces that there are around in our society. One of the things they tell us is that when you're tired, you need time out from spiritual things. No, 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 you don't. I feel tired, I feel a Netflix binge coming on, I feel, you know, I, I need some time out, I need to get involved, I need to do my sport, I need to watch, you know, football, or I need to just go out with some drinks with some mates, I need to do some things that switch off, because I feel tired. Do you know the best place you find rest is in the Lord? You find rest in Him. There's no one that will love you for who you are like He loves you for who you are. There's no one that will liberate you like He liberates you. You don't need time off from spiritual things. You need the fellowship of the lover of your soul in your heart and your life. But in him we find rest, we find refuge, we find healing, we find joy, we find peace, we find hope, we find restoration. We find all that, not in the latest Netflix series. We find it in him. Fifthly, Back this picture of mum and lover, you prefer helping practically more than you do enjoying intimacy. Do you know, think of Mary and Martha, one like to do, one like to be. We need both. 
And it, it is challenging sometimes. Mothers and lovers, it's challenging. Churches that just do, 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 care, care, care. Maybe your mother instinct is about caring for others and looking out for others and helping others. And we applaud you. You are amazing. But it's not enough. And you're not just spending time with Jesus to fill your tank so you can do that stuff better. The ultimate goal of your life is to sit at his feet and to know his love lavished upon you. Be mothers, but be lovers. Come back to worship and adoration. So what happened next? Let's look at verse four together. My lover, and I keep feeling like I'm slipping into a West Country accent every time I say that word. My lover. My lover, try to unlatch the door. And my heart thrilled within me. I jumped up to open the door for my love. My hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. Again, he knocks and he seeks to unlock your heart. You know the song, we sang it a few weeks ago. There's no shadow he won't light up. There's no mountain he won't climb up. There's no wall he won't kick down. There's no lie he won't tear down in coming after you. But there is one door he won't kick down. And that's the door of your heart. He'll never force himself into intimacy with you. The lock is on your side. It's the door to your heart. God is a gentleman. And we read that his hands, in the first verse, talked about that lovely myrrh and spices. His hands were covered in it. As he tried to open the latch, that perfume would have dripped off the latch. And she finally gets out of bed and thinks, oh, my lover, of course. And she runs across the room to undo the latch. And this latch has got the aroma of him all over it. The perfume and the scent fills the room and it's now on her hands. I've seen many times Jesus come to open people's hearts with the scent of his beauty, with his kindness, with his love. There have been times I've been sat in my office downstairs, maybe you're among these people. And people, they, they often open their hearts and they talk about their difficulties and their pain and their disappointments and maybe their feelings of hopelessness. And there are times when I think they've probably come to the past hoping for some word of wisdom, but there are times I've just stopped and said, hey, I'm so sorry for your pain. Shall we ask Jesus to come in the room? No wisdom from my mouth? Well, actually, the wisest thing that could come out of my mouth is, shall we invite Jesus in the room? And I've seen, you know, I've just prayed a simple prayer. Jesus, healer, 
life giver, peace bringer, joy giver. Come. And I've waited. There was one occasion I remember that I pretty much closed that time in prayer. And then I looked at the person opposite me. And they weren't awkwardly opening their eyes thinking, is it over yet? Can I, can I go? I could smell the aroma of Christ in the room. And he was all over this guy. And then, with no more words, I'm just watching Jesus at work. I'm not saying anything. I'm not laying hands. I'm just watching and smelling his aroma in the room. And then this guy begins to weep like a baby. Tears rolling down his cheeks. And I just watch Jesus at work. Because I see those tears, they're healing. There's stuff coming out of this guy's life. It's not emotion, this is Jesus. And then the tears, after what felt like a while, stopped. And there was silence. And I could still smell the aroma of Jesus in the room. And I'm watching. And then this guy begins to laugh. His eyes are closed. He's forgotten I'm there. Jesus is there. And he's laughing. And there's joy filling those places of pain. Jesus, you're beautiful. Go, Jesus. And, and then the laughing stopped. And it was like another wave of healing came. And more tears flowed. After about 45 minutes of watching Jesus at work, this guy opened his eyes. I said, tell me what happened. He said, Jesus came to me. And he's healed me. I did nothing. <laughs> he did everything. But I've also been in similar situations. When I've smelt that same aroma of Christ and his presence. And I've seen the heart's lock. Do you know, I've seen people that close to the aroma of freedom and deliverance from strategies of the enemy that he's had over their life for years, demonic oppression. And as the aroma of Christ comes in the room, they refuse to unlock. I even... Being in an environment, situations, just the same sort of context where we've sensed the aroma of Christ to heal someone physically in the room. And they're so attached to the comfort of their identity being formed from their illness that they've said no. 
You can be that close to the presence of God and yet that far because he wants us to open our hearts. Behold, he stands at the door and he knocks. He will always honor your choice to unlock your door. But make no mistake, no matter how tight you lock it, his aroma is there. He is just one whisper away. And she comes to her senses. I can see it dawning on her. The smell begins to fill the room. And she's like, what am I doing? Why would I choose to stay in my bed right now and refuse to allow my lover in? And she jumps up. And she quickly goes to the door and she opens the latch. No longer concerned about the coldness of the night or the state of her feet. And she reaches for the lock. Verse 6 says, I opened to my lover, but look at this, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but I could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. He was gone. She had delayed too long. There's a a leadership guru who said these words. The opportunity of a lifetime only exists within the lifetime of the opportunity. This opportunity had gone. But what we do is we know an opportunity that comes and we think, it'll still be there tomorrow. He'll still be there tomorrow. I'll open up tomorrow after I had a good night's sleep under my 15-tog duvet. But we fail to realize this. Every time he knocks the door of our hearts, it is the opportunity of a lifetime. Every time. And maybe right now you're thinking and reflecting on times in your life when Jesus has knocked on the door of your heart. I reflect that there are some key moments in our life. And every time that Jesus has knocked on the door of our hearts to bring something of his love and his direction and his hope and his dreaming in our life, to join together, every time he's done that, it's always involved me getting up out of a place of my comfort. Every time, without exception. He's never knocked when I'm stood by the door thinking, I'll just hang out here until he knocks. It always involves us mustering ourselves up from a place of ease. I remember there have been times in my life where key direction has come we were involved in leading a really great church in the center of Birmingham, and we loved it. It was growing. It was thriving. It was buzzing. We had a great team. There was 
you know, great resources, wonderful building, and it was just really, really buzzing. And at the same time, God was stirring my heart about starting a national youth ministry off. And the youth ministry had no budget, no staff, no team. It had no offices, no computer. It had nothing. And I felt God knock on the door of my heart and saying, that's the one. I'm saying, but God, I've got three kids and a mortgage. And if I take this option, there's no income. There's nothing. But he knocked on the door of my heart, and I'm so glad that Nita and I got out of bed that day, and we opened the door, and we said, Jesus, we want to trust that anything you ask of us from the other side of the door is infinitely better than anything we've got on this side of the door. And I trusted him. We trusted him. And he opened a way, and he made it happen, and he caused something to happen that was precious and special because we trusted the man on the other side of the door. But of course, he doesn't just knock about big directional changes in our life. His knocking on the door of our heart is a daily occurrence. He's knocking on our door in the morning saying, come, come away with me. Come away with me to the scriptures. Come away and sit in my presence. Come away. This is an opportunity for us to knit our hearts together in intimacy. Let's delight in each other. Let's enjoy the delights of our love. Do you know Jesus loves hanging out with you? It's obvious he loves you. A.W. Tozer, a great author, pastor, prophet, he reflected in the time that he was alive that this world has a propensity to evil, has a propensity to hate, and therefore God's people if they want to avoid being subsumed by that hate and that evil, they have to withdraw to Jesus on a regular basis. They have to detox to Jesus. They have to pull away from the crowd, just as Jesus did, to come away from the activities and the busyness and to just hang out with Jesus. We can't, for most of us, become recluses that live in a cave on the side of a mountain and spend our rest of our life growing fruit and veg, um, just living off the produce of our land and avoiding the evil agendas of the world around us. That's not the reality for most of us. We live in the world. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We're of Jesus. We're united with Jesus. We're united with the lover of our soul who is knocking on the door, giving us the opportunity of a lifetime and saying, let's hang out together. But she was too late. He'd gone. You may recall a few weeks ago, there was a really similar scene where he just disappeared. There was no reason given. We never got a conclusion as to what took place. But she searched. And we saw that as the Puritans called it, there was a time of spiritual desertion where it feels like God withdraws. Of course, he doesn't. He's always with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. But there are times when he feels like he's distant because he's bringing desire out in our hearts. But this is different. Because as this bride looks out of the door, where's he gone? She's facing the regrets of her missed opportunities. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've know that you've missed opening up. 
And now she's living with that regret. And then it gets more bizarre because you move on to verse 7 and it says, the night watchman found me because she's now searching everywhere for him. And as they made their rounds, it says, they beat me and bruised me and stripped off my veil, those watchmen on the walls. This probably didn't happen. This is probably poetic. This is probably a way of her describing that she felt so vulnerable without her lover, without her groom. She felt so emotionally vulnerable that it felt like she'd been beaten up. She was stripped emotionally. And now, in her request to those around her, she says some amazing words. She said, tell him if you see him, I am weak with love. I wonder. I wonder if those words can be uttered by his bride today. We are weak with love. But they replied, these people that she was inquiring of, they replied to her in verse 9. They said, why is your lover better than all the others? A woman of rare beauty. Whoa, she's rare beauty. She was ugly a few chapters ago and vulnerable and felt embarrassed to be the person that will be chosen. And now th these women around her are saying, you, are, you have a rare beauty. That's what happens when you hang out with Jesus. He makes you more beautiful. He transforms people who hang out with him. We become like him. His life glistens through our lives. His glorious radiance emanates from his people. And people see the beauty of God in the people of God. But why is your lover better than all the others? What makes your lover so special that we must promise to tell him this? It's a great question to ask. Why is Jesus better than everything else in your life? Why is he better than your career? Why is he better than your wealth? Why is he better than your hobbies? If you can't answer this better than question with anything deep and sincere in your heart, I'm not talking about parrot, parrot fashion reciting you know, old hymns that says, I am my beloved's and he is mine, his banner over me is love. And I'm talking about something that comes from the heart, something that you know this is why he is better than. And she gives, and I'm going to close with this in a moment, verse 10 onwards to the end of the chapter. She describes with such eloquence why her lover, her husband, is better than everything else. Let's look at it together. My lover is dark and dazzling. He's better than 10,000 others. Doesn't that ring a bell to better is one day in your courts and a thousand elsewhere? His head is fine as gold, his wavy hair is black as a raven, his eyes sparkle like doves beside springs of water. They are set like jewels, washed in milk. His cheeks are like gardens of spices, giving off fragrance. His lips are like lilies, 
perfumed with myrrh. His arms are like rounded bars of gold, set with beryl. His body is like bright ivory, glowing with lapsus lazuli. His legs are like marble pillars, set in sockets of finest gold. His posture is stately, like the noble cedars of Lebanon. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is desirable in every way. Such, O women of Jerusalem, is my lover, my friend. They may not be the descriptions that you will put in Valentine's cards tomorrow. But you can see she's thought about this. She knows why he's better than everyone else. Do you? Do you know why Jesus is better than everything else? Anyone else? Not the same as, not good, but better than? Because it's only when we know that he's better than do we get up from outside our quilt and not worry about the condition of our feet and unlock that door and allow the aroma of Christ to fill our lives. It's only when we know he's better than. In conclusion, will you open the door of your heart each time he knocks? He'll knock today. He's knocking now. He'll knock tomorrow. Will you open your heart? Will you allow the aroma of Jesus to fill your life? Listen. It's so obvious that you are loved. And it's so obvious that he is better than all the others. Where did he go? You have to come back next week to find out. <laughs> but I promise you, he's never left you. And he's a God of second chances. Let's stand together, shall we? Just be still. If you feel it appropriate, maybe just stretch your hands out. Just signifying like an open door. You're not concealing your heart. You're not locking anything away. And you're being really open that you have all sorts of failures and faults, frailties, things that feel unlovely, mistakes that are felt terminal, Hopelessness has felt never-ending. And as you open the door of your life, you're not denying that. You're letting him in to the real you. Let the fragrance of Jesus fill these lives.
us the wisdom to take off the comfort blankets. May we hear your heart pulsate in the other side of that door, not to tell us off, not to harm us, earth have hurt us there's been a danger that the enemy has exploited that to, to tell us convince us that's what you'll do with us and as we smell the aroma of your presence in our lives as we trust the one that's on the other side of the door we say come and heal our hearts thing any of us can do in our life is to embrace him but I've referenced some things around marriage today and I would like just to pray for all our marriages Lord I pray that hearts will be joined together I pray that offenses will be healed I pray that barriers will be melted Lord I pray that husbands and wives will come together in great closeness and intimacy and your blessing will be upon every marriage within this church and Lord I thank you for those that feel called to singleness, I thank you, they're complete. They can be complete in you. But Lord, those who are longing to find the right life partner, husband or wife, I pray, God, in your grace, that you will bring about those meetings. And I pray, God, they'll be godly. I pray that they will be a greatest representation of you in their life that they've ever known. So may we as a church open up our hearts and love you with everything.